Good afternoon, everyone. Those born into the kingdom of God in the first resurrection were told in Scripture destined to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow. That is, during the millennial rule of Christ on the earth, we read about it in, among other places, in Revelation 20. In verse 6, where it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In other words, as kings and priests, they will be Leaders, the leaders under Jesus Christ, they will be exercising rulership, administrative responsibility. They will be teachers, educators, planners, and creators of a new and far better society. Of course, all guided and directed by Jesus Christ. If we hope to be a part of that government, we need to be preparing now to assume leadership positions in that future age. Today I want to discuss qualities of leadership each of us ought to seek to develop in preparation for God's kingdom, as well as to be exercising leadership now. But first, let's look at some examples of leadership and consider how critical the right kind of leadership is to the fate of nations, of societies, and individuals. God warns us that following the wrong kind of leadership can destroy us. Isaiah prophesied, and he was speaking largely, he spoke of many nations, but he spoke largely of the people of Israel and Judah especially. And by the way, this prophecy wasn't only for ancient times. It also applies today. And this is in Isaiah 9 and verse 16. Isaiah 9 and verse 16. He said, The leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. The leaders of the people were causing them to fall into error. And those who are led by such leaders are destined for destruction. On the other hand, Paul told Timothy that exercising the right kind of leadership could save both him and those he led. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16 Paul said to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Now, Timothy was a leader in the church. He was an evangelist. In other words, he was exercising the responsibility for leading several churches. And Paul said, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will 
save both yourself and those who hear you. So the right kind of leadership can benefit not only the leader, but those who hear them in terms of salvation and the various things that go along with success. We read in Genesis that Adam was created first and he was then given a wife. And as the husband, he was assigned a leadership role in the first human family. But Adam failed miserably to lead his wife into a pattern of obedience to God. He failed to correct his wife's error when she sinned and directly disobeyed God's word. Instead of correcting her, he wound up following her lead into sin. And so in Genesis 3 and verse 17, Genesis 3 and verse 17, we read, Then to Adam, he, that is God, said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And he went on to tell Adam that he would return to the dust from which he was made. He had passed up the opportunity to be granted eternal life. He and Eve both. They had failed in exercising the proper qualities of leadership. And as a consequence, they fell into sin and they were cast out of God's presence. During the early period of the judges, Israel had effective leaders in Joshua and his lieutenants, and under their leadership, the nation served the eternal, the true God. And we read in Judges 2 and verse 7, Judges 2 and verse 7, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So during his days and the others who had served with him was uh, one of the few periods in Israel's history when evidently they were largely faithful to God. But after those leaders died out, the nation lapsed into idolatry, following the path of least resistance, seeking to blend in with the world around them, rather than following the path that God had set out for them. And as a consequence, God gave them over to the hand of their enemies. And in Judges 2 and verse 10, Judges 2 beginning with verse 10, we read, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal in the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, 
So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. So while Israel had sound leadership in Joshua and those who served with him, with the absence of proper leadership, they fell into error and suffered as a result. Later on, Israel demanded a king, and God gave Israel the kind of king that they desired. And in 1 Samuel 12, 1 Samuel 12 and verse 13, we read, Now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. The king, the king's name was Saul. And when Saul failed to exhibit leadership qualities pleasing to God, God chose David to replace Saul. We read about it in 1 Samuel 13, beginning with verse 13, 1 Samuel 13 and verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commanded over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, as we saw implied there in that verse. But even though he was a man after God's own heart, he was not necessarily the kind of man that other humans would have been likely to choose as their leader. We read in 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peacefully? And he said, or peaceably, and he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at, at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is here before him. So Eliab was one of the sons of Jesse. And going on, though, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then we go on with verse 10 in 1 Samuel 16. At verse 10, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down till he comes here. 
So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready with bright eyes and good and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. God chose David the least likely of Jesse's sons in the sight of his father and evidently the rest of the family to be selected by God through Samuel as the next king of Israel. Daniel was a captive slave who rose to a position of supreme leadership under powerful Gentile rulers. Why did he become the third ruler in the kingdom immediately after the the king and his father, who was, in a a sense, they were co-regents, was partly because Daniel exhibited specific qualities of leadership that we will discuss today. One of those qualities that we will discuss is strength of character. Daniel had strength of character. As we read in Daniel 1 and verse 8, this was exhibited in many ways, but this is an example here. And Daniel 1 and verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel refused food from the king's table and the wine which he drank. The reason being that such food and wine would have been in that culture dedicated to false gods and defiled in that way. And so Daniel refused to defile himself ceremonially with such fair. Daniel also possessed humility. By the way, he did this at great risk to himself. Daniel possessed humility as well. He was asked to interpret a dream for the king, which he did with God's inspiration. And in Daniel 2 and verse 30, Daniel 2 and verse 30, Daniel said, As for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So he didn't try to take credit for being able to interpret the dream and brag about it. He said that it was a gift given to him from God. And he gave God due credit for what he was able to accomplish only with God's help. Daniel exhibited an, an excellent spirit, we're told, and he developed a reputation for possessing knowledge and wisdom. In Daniel 5... Daniel 5, beginning with verse 11, it says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
and in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So this was a later incident where a uh, sort of a vision, I suppose you would call it, had occurred to the king of Babylon, and Daniel was called to provide the interpretation, which he did. But the point is that he had a, a reputation for wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and being able to explain enigmas and so forth. Now, many of these qualities of character that we've mentioned here and leadership are qualities that any of us can develop through diligent effort with God's help. We may not necessarily be able to interpret dreams as Daniel did, but but uh, who knows, we might be able to, given the proper circumstances, depending on what God's will is and how he chooses to use us. But the fact that you're here indicates that you have already begun exercising at least some desirable leadership qualities, or you wouldn't be here. Most people today are not here, or not anywhere like this. Most people today are not keeping the Sabbath. They're not listening to God's word being taught. They're not thinking about God's word. Something motivated you to be here today, and hopefully that something includes a genuine desire to please God, and you can build on that to grow into the kind of leader God wants you to become because he wants every one of us to become leaders. That's what he has in store for us. That's what he has in mind for us in the future. Now, many people have come along wanting to be cast into a leadership role. And this is quite common. Of course, we live in a democracy where people run for various offices wanting leadership positions. And it's not necessarily unusual for human beings to want to be considered leaders. Simon Magus wanted a leadership role in the church. But his motives were not pure. His motives were selfish and lustful. He tried to buy influence and power with money. A wrongly motivated desire for power and control is evil. And it disqualifies one for leadership in God's sight. 
not necessarily wrong to want to be a leader if your motive is proper, but if your motive is impure and, and it is a lustful, power-seeking, selfish kind of desire for a position of leadership, then that is something that God does not approve of and will not respond to in a positive way. In Acts 8, verse 18, Acts 8, beginning with verse 18, we read, When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So here we see several examples of the right kind of leadership and an example of how not to strive to become a leader. Let's look now at some specific qualities of leadership that we should be striving to develop. The first I want to discuss, the first quality, and there will be seven of them, seven specific qualities of leadership that we should be seeking to develop. And the first one is humility. You might think that it's strange that a leader would need to have humility, but in fact that's a very important quality. Some people are driven by a lust for influence, recognition, control, for power over others, as was Simon Magus. However, a truly godly leader must be filled with genuine humility motivated by love, as exemplified by Jesus Christ himself. Notice what we read about Jesus Christ and his motivation in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. Philippians 2 and verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And really, that's uh, just to break into the uh, section of Scripture you're going to read here. Uh, that is one of the basic essences of leadership is not being so much concerned with your own interest, but for the interest of others. And that is part of what humility is. It goes on to say in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
So Jesus Christ emptied himself of his divine power and glory to become a human being. And he humbled himself in that way and was obedient to the point of death for the sake of others. A godly leader must rid himself of vanity and self-righteousness. He must develop an attitude of wanting to render true service to others. And that often means willing, being willing to sacrifice the self. As we carry on with lives of service to others, we must do so in humility and with graciousness, not begrudgingly, nor with haughtiness. You probably can think of many leaders who have exhibited, exhibited a haughty um, attitude of arrogance. And even though they might have been effective leaders to one degree or another, that's not the kind of leadership that we want to emulate, at least not in that respect. A pervasive spirit of humility and outgoing concern ought to be reflected in our actions with other people. As we read in Romans 12, Romans 12 and verse 9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligent and diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one for evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And all of these things that are mentioned here are consistent with an attitude of humility. At the same time, we need to be aware of a false humility springing from what some people regard as righteousness or humility, but it is really a false humility and a kind of self-righteousness. We're warned about that in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 and verse 18 it says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So we see it is a false humility, but it is really a kind of vanity. And it is vain. And it goes on to say, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? 
do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And this is quite common in human-devised religion. People make up these rules. Don't, don't touch this. Don't handle that. Wear this type of clothing. Uh, assume this particular sort of expression. And all of those are designed to give a, an appearance of religiosity and humility, but it is a false humility. And it is really a kind of spiritual pride and self-righteousness for the most part. Before one can expect to be exalted to a place of authority by God, one must learn genuine humility and learn to yield to God. Humility before God is yielding to God. It is seeking to please and obey God, being willing to give up your own self-will and humbling yourself before God to obey Him. James 4 and verse 6, James 4 and verse 6, it says, He, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. We might ask ourselves individually, how am I doing with my own legitimate responsibilities? The ones that I already have the leadership responsibilities that have already been given to me. What about men who are husbands and fathers? Are you being a proper leader of your family? Are you in uplifting, inspiring, guiding, setting a proper example in your conduct and attitude for your family? Are you genuinely concerned about looking after their well-being in every way possible? So this is one way that we can judge our, our leadership uh, development and what kind of job we're doing as a leader. The same is true of women. If you are a wife and mother, are you meekly discharging your responsibilities in serving the needs of your husband and children. If we're not humbling, humbly and diligently exercising the responsibilities God has already given to us, then how can we expect to be given greater responsibilities in the future? 
Another quality of leadership, which we've already touched on, but we'll discuss now in more detail, is love. If you're keeping count, this is number two. God's entire plan is based on love, which is outgoing concern. His plan is based on love for us, for we human beings. God is in the process of leading us into his kingdom out of love for us and out of a desire to share with us his life and everything he owns, which is, in fact, everything. God is in the process of building a family. Godly leadership is intended to be reflected in the family, and that's where it begins. In Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, which was the subject of our sermon last week. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So notice the emphasis here placed in the family on love, and particularly in this passage of Scripture, husbands loving their wives with the same principle goes for the wives, too. They are also instructed elsewhere to love their husbands. Husbands are called upon to lead their families out of genuine love, out of a real concern for the well-being of their wives and their children. And each husband should think about the needs of his wife, her physical needs, her spiritual, emotional, intellectual needs, and strive to see that those needs are met. Husbands, fathers, and wives, too, should strive to build bonds of love in their families that cannot be broken. Every member of every family should be working actively toward that end. It is our duty before God. Note how Paul approached leading the church after a pattern of affection and care that one would expect of loving fathers and mothers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, Paul said, We were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That's how Paul led the church. He went on to say in verse 10, Verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 2, You are witnesses and God also, how devotedly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own 
children. So notice this principle of family relationships founded on love and concern for others was carried out by Paul in leading the church. So we might ask ourselves as fathers and mothers, are we gentle with one another? Are we gentle with our children? Do we affectionately cherish our family members? Do you strive to be devout, just, blameless in your relations with one another? Do you lovingly exhort, implore, and comfort your family? And can you extend that same loving approach to your church family and then to everyone you deal with? Now, that's a tall order, but it's God's kind of leadership. And it begins with our most intimate relationships within the family. The next item that I want to discuss as a quality of godly leadership is patience. A leader must exercise patience in dealing with others. Notice in Ephesians 4, or excuse me, see Ephesians 6, verse 4, it says, You fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to wrath. This implies working with our children patiently and consistently, not striking out in anger at every mistake, which is one way a child can be provoked to wrath. There are several ways, actually, but that's one of them. And the same principle applies whether it's a family, a city, or a nation. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 8, it says, The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So we need to make sure we have control over our anger and overcome our tendency to be angry and we need to develop patience in dealing with other people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 it says now we exhort you brethren warn those who are unruly Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Now being patient is something that can be very difficult, especially with difficult people. But nevertheless, we need to strive to be patient as much as possible with everyone. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24, it says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. So when, when we have... Uh, people who are opposing 
or wanting to debate or argue the things that uh, really they may be poorly informed about, but we still have to exercise patience. And we, we have to be able to teach others with patience. And again, this can often be difficult. Verse 25, it says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. We have to have the courage to, to correct those who are wrong. But we have to do it patiently and with humility. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, and they may or may not listen, they may or may not, may not repent, but we still have to make the effort to correct when necessary in humility and with patience. In verse 26, it says that they may come to their senses and may escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Another quality of godly leadership is being willing to suffer wrong. Being willing to suffer wrong. If you are a leader, you will become a target for others. The leaders God has chosen have throughout history been maligned, hated, ridiculed, and persecuted wrongfully. Jesus Christ died as a despised criminal in the minds of his own countrymen. In any position of leadership, they may, there may be very well be and very likely will be those who oppose, those who will vilify and slander you. A godly leader must be willing to bear abuse without hatred and bitterness. In Luke 6, Luke 6, verse 22, it says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner your fathers, their fathers did to the prophets. I don't know how much you've been keeping up with the news lately, but nowadays anyone who even uh, claims to be a Christian is often a target for ridicule and hatred and persecution. Not necessarily actually being a Christian or or taking much of a stand as a Christian, but if you even identify as a Christian falsely or, or in truth, you may very well become a target of hate and persecution. But if we're going to lead as Christians, we have to be willing to suffer wrong. In uh, 1 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 12, this often happened to Paul, and he comments on it in his epistles where he was treated disrespectfully and, and uh, 
in a very abusive manner at times. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12, we labor working with our hands being reviled. Now he's talking here about not just being reviled by people outside the church, but the, the context shows that he was reviled sometimes by people within the church. He said, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. And yet Paul endured that patiently, suffering wrong for the sake of the people he was trying to help and for, this, for the sake of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, beginning verse 19, Peter said, This is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Peter also wrote in 1 Peter 3, beginning with verse 13, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for wrongdoing or, for, or excuse me, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. The next quality of leadership that I want to mention, number five, is vision. God has a vision of what he purposes for us. He wants us to have it, to be motivated by that very same vision. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 33, Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Our number one goal in life should be the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That should be the vision before us, to, to be seeking the kingdom of God. So we can ask ourselves, do I have the vision of God's kingdom in the forefront of my mind? Are the laws of God as frontlets before my eyes? All godly leaders must have vision and the faith to pursue it. We read about faithful people of old in the book of Hebrews, especially in Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 8. We read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place 
which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham had a vision. It's really a vision of God's kingdom. And he waited for that vision to become reality. He never actually saw it in his lifetime. He won't see it until the resurrection. But he looked forward to it. He had a vision of it. And it, it uh, motivated him to act in faith. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They saw them afar off. They had vision. And they were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared, prepared a city for them. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So there will be times in our lives when we fail, when we feel like we're miserable failures and and uh, it's seems like it's futile to go on perhaps Paul says don't do that don't quit but pick yourself up and keep running keep moving toward the goal looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Jesus had a vision of what lay in store for him when it was all over all of his suffering and as a result he was able to endure the things that he endured and now sits at the right hand of God the sixth quality of godly leadership as I mentioned earlier is strength of character I did mention this quality earlier in in uh, connection with Daniel a leader must know what is right a godly leader has to know what is right what is the right thing to do and more than that a godly leader has to have the fortitude and the determination to do what's right, even when it's difficult, which it often is. In Proverbs 14, verse 34, 
Proverbs 14, verse 34, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And in Proverbs 29, verse 2, Proverbs 29, verse 2, it says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. People may not necessarily uh, respond positively to your decisions even when they're right. But the ultimate consequence is that, that everything is going to work better. And the final outcome will be good. If, but we have to have strength of character to know what's right and follow through, even when our decisions are not popular. And finally, number seven, the, number, the seventh quality of godly leadership is that a leader must lead. A leader must lead. In the final analysis, a leader has to lead. Otherwise, you're not a leader. And that means you set the example. You set the example. For us, it means that we have a duty to set a proper example by following the example of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is our leader. He is the leader of us all. And so we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, 1 Peter 1 and verse 15, it says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We are to lead by following the example of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2 and verse 6, 1 John 2 and verse 6, it says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. We need now to begin to develop qualities of leadership according to godly principles, not out of a lust for power or a desire to control people, but so that we'll be capable of taking on the responsibilities that God has in mind for us in his kingdom. And also so that our lives now can be lived through their full potential for accomplishment, fulfillment, and joy. So let's strive to be in a position when Christ returns that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord.